0: Welcome to the Big Kids Book Club, a podcast about all things fictional from middle grade to young adult. So sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Hey, hey! Welcome back to another episode of the Big Kids Book Club. My name is Marcus, and I'm your host. And joining me on the show today, we have a lovely guest. You know her as M. A. Bennett, author of the Stags YA series and the middle grade series, The Butterfly Club. The second book coming out now, The Mummy's Curse. It's M. A. Bennett. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks very much for having me. It's lovely to be here. It's lovely to have you here, Marina. So. Obviously, you are a brand new guest onto the podcast, and we like to get to know our authors a little bit better rather than just having some like uh, random conversation. Let's get to know you actually as a, an author and a person. So do you want to tell us a bit of your writing journey, maybe some of the highlights, how you got into it, and maybe some of the journey to where you are now?
1: Well, it was a bit of an odd one, really, because I was I was on maternity leave when I wrote my first book. Uh, which is quite a few years ago now. And uh, it was one of those things where I felt like I just had complete baby brain and all my faculties had sort of drained away. And I was sort of living in this world of sort of nappies and Teletubbies and CBeebies. And uh, I just suddenly started feeling like I wanted to write something just to sort of see if I could, because I did like a history degree years ago and it's one of those things where you leave university and you think, ha ha, I'm never gonna use that again. And of course now I'm using it all the time. Um, so I started having an idea for sort of a historical story and my husband nobly sort of took our son off for like a day, one day a week, and I'd have a writing day. And so I started writing this short story and then that just sort of expanded and expanded and expanded. And by the end of sort of six months I had this book and I didn't really know what to do with it and then I took it to a literary agent um and you know, actually took it to four literary agents uh two of them sort of said you should flush this down the toilet and then the other two said I would like to read it you know and uh yeah one one of them actually said uh it's good to go I want we'll we'll, we'll you know I want to see if we can get this published the other one actually said Uh, it needs a little bit of peril in the second act and you need to flesh out these characters and those characters. And I actually, in the end, went with that one because I thought she's not like a yes woman. She's not just going, oh, this is perfect. Because of course it's not perfect. I was a total rookie writer. So the short and narrow of it, this is a very long answer, but basically I never went back to work after my maternity leave. So I just, after that, was lucky enough to become a, a writer, a full-time writer, and I'm still doing it, and no one's found me out yet. So
0: <laughs> getting <laughs> away with it. Yeah. <laughs> <But yeah. laughs> now, interesting that one there. Obviously, I, I, we've spoken to a lot of different writers, and some of them, you know, mentioned there the sort of the first book being the rookie writer. Was that the sort of manuscript, the one that became Stags, the one that sort of kicked off the, the ball rolling, or did you have to sort of work no, on that? He, that got well. Ditched. This
1: was way back actually. So when um, my first few books actually were historical novels for uh, they were adult novels. I always say adult novels and I think it sounds like porn. They're not porn. Uh, They are adult, like books for adults, but they were about Renaissance Italy um, because I'm half Italian. And I thought of, I started mining sort of a bit of family history. And I think when you have a kid, sometimes it makes you think about your heritage and where you come from. And so I was sort of keying into the sort of Italian stories from the Renaissance so I actually did a few historical novels um and then when my kids sort of became old enough to sort of start reading YA I really became interested in sort of telling stories for them because there's no way they were ever going to pick up like the a book about you know Leonardo or you know Michelangelo or whatever I was writing at the time so uh But yeah, I started being interested in writing for younger people. And since I was raising sort of two young adults in my house, I thought, well, I might as well exploit them for a (laughs) a bit of research. Um, And then I started having this idea about, uh, again, it was a sort of a heritage thing. My gran was in service and she was uh, a kitchen maid at a big stately home in in, uh, North Yorkshire. And she eventually sort of made her way up to housekeeper so it's all very Downton Abbey and um, I sort of started thinking about her experiences and luckily she never experienced anything like stags but it was more about entitlement what young people would be like young privileged people would be like if they were on a country house weekend with no adults no supervision how long would it take them to go kind of lord of the flies Um, so yeah I just had this concept of Um, young privileged people using the misfits from their school and like inviting the misfits from their school to this country house and basically treating them like prey so it was a hunting shooting fishing weekend which my gran used to work on these hunt weekends and that's why I kind of had that background but yeah I thought about the fact that maybe privileged kids would invite these misfits to the house and treat them as the prey so that's really the concept, where that came from. But yeah, stacks was quite a, quite a way into my writing career, if you want to call it that, I guess.
0: Yeah, I mean, it definitely takes one of those sort of concepts. And I, I feel like, uh, especially nowadays, you can have that sort of more grittier context behind um, YA or, or even middle grade. And sometimes you are allowed to just be a little shade darker, maybe perhaps, yeah. than uh, 10, 15 years ago. You know, kids have been seen like different movies and stuff like that i think we're it's a good thing we're sort of like being attuned to some realisms of uh you know sometimes things aren't all sugary sweet and there are horrible people in the world um yeah. but it definitely sort of took off and it got i think it's a free sequels to the stags there's foxes there's, there's-, uh,
1: there's actually five all together now so it was one of those things that just grew because i it started as a standalone and then the publisher said oh, oh you know is there a sequel here could could you do one I was like yes <laughs> and then and then they said can you do another another one after that and then I had got another two book deal after that to to carry on the story so it is concluded now uh, well I say that there they, <laughs> it, it concludes as they leave the school and they're about to go to uni so I could one day maybe go back to it and do a sort of stags varsity thing but at the moment it is uh, it's concluded with hawks which was the last one which came out in, she thinks about this, September, I think it was. So, yeah, it's done for now.
0: For now, which gives you opportunity to work on new projects. And that one is a middle grade uh, entry with the Butterfly Club. Now, we had previously before we had the Butterfly Club. uh, Is it the Ship of Doom?
1: Yeah, that's so, right. That was the first one.
0: The first one where we were introduced to, to Luna, Constantine and Aidan and the concept of the Butterfly Club. And we're back in book two. And this time we have the Mummy's Curse. Um, <laughs> Marina, do you want to give us a little bit of a, maybe an intro into anyone who's not familiar with what the Butterfly Club is and an intro into what's going on in the Mummy's Curse?
1: OK, so the Butterfly Club is a kind of a league of extraordinary ladies and gentlemen. So all the great minds of the Victorian age. So you've got Conan Doyle, you've got HG Wells, you've got all these these amazing figures. And they all meet uh, at the Greenwich Observatory, which of course is the home of time, in a secret room called the Butterfly Room. And it's covered, all the walls have got that kind of uh, butterflies on little cards, you know, pinned to cards. Um, So they meet in this room and it's on the actual Greenwich Meridian. And what they've done is with the help of Mr. HG Wells, of course, Uh, they've invented a time machine. And what they do essentially is they travel forward in time. So there's no um, Tudors or Romans or anything like that. They travel forward in time in order to sort of steal artifacts from the future. And what they do is they bring them back in order to sort of advance progress or advance kind of cultural understanding. But as we find out in this book, uh there's also an element of plunder so I wanted to get into ideas of it's kind of like time colonialization in a way because uh, we sort of get in this book in particular we get into ideas of sort of restitution and where artifacts should be should they be in their own country and that's really a big theme in this book so in the mummy's curse um my three sort of protagonists Luna, Constantine, and Aiden, uh, who are sort of, you know, they're they're 12, 13 themselves. So they're kind of in that uh, middle grade zone. They travel forward in time to the Valley of the Kings in 1922. And they go with uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, who accompanies them. And their mission is to get to Tutankhamun before Howard Carter does. So essentially, they pip him to the post when they they sort of get there the day before he's supposed to make the discovery and try to beat him to it uh, so that's the concept and then it's all about uh the butterfly club want to bring Tutankhamun's mummy back to Britain and display it in the British Museum because their concept is that of course because Britain was then the center of this massive empire and they had a very sort of um a very um centralized imperial notion of like where artifacts should be of course they should be in the british museum where else would they be um so they think that the that the mummy belongs in britain and then the children begin to discover that maybe that's not the way it should go so i won't say any more than that but uh that's kind of the concept of the book
0: yeah and i do love the the concept itself of the whole time travel because time travel is just it's just quintessentially just a great hook into anything wherever you're time traveling the idea that the concept of only going forward and i love the way that by going forward because you know if you time travel in the past it's always like how you affect because you know the outcome but by traveling forward we get repercussions that i don't think anyone's ever been conceived with and that really brings me to mind when Constantine goes to the future, it's 1920, and when they find out he's Prussian slash now German, the way he's treated, and he just doesn't quite get get it yet because the First World War, obviously they're traveling from 1894, I
1: think it is. Yeah.
0: So obviously it's 20 years until the First World War and that repercussion. And suddenly now it's 1922 and everyone's got this anti-German sort of glint over things. And so I love the way that was done. Is it when you're sort of like looking at sort of going forward, is there sort of a choice? Because obviously you have this plethora of world events to pick from. When you're picking stuff like The Mummy's Curse, was there a sort of like a way that you sort of eliminate the process? Is it because, oh, this is a great world event? I'd be interested in writing this. Um, you mentioned earlier how, you know, being half Italian, you were writing Renaissance books. Was there a certain reason that you were sort of like drawn to that sort of period of time, the uncovering of the Valley of the Kings?
1: Um, I think it was because so there's there's four books again I keep saying at the moment but there's there's four books in this series with obviously there could be more eventually but um, in each case it was really predicated on the fact that um, the uh, the sort of founder of the butterfly club is a guy called uh, Professor Edward Norton Lawrence and he invented the butterfly effect now the butterfly effect, as I'm sure you know, but just for the for the sake of any listeners, is the concept that if something really tiny changes, um, you can it has huge repercussions. So I think the original theorem stated that if a butterfly flaps its wings in Mexico, it can set a tornado in Texas. So that's the idea that, that this connectivity through time. And so the four events that I've um, the four events that I've collected together they all had something that happened that was tiny, but it's a kind of a big historical event. But within that sort of nested within it, almost like Russian dolls, there's a tiny thing that happened and that pivots the entire story. Now it's quite hard to explain without giving away, but uh, uh, for instance, jumping forward to the Mona Lisa, um, the guy that stole the Mona Lisa, no spoilers, Um, he took the doorknob off the store cupboard in the Louvre and he threw it over some railings. Uh, So that one doorknob was found and it was fingerprinted. Now, fingerprinting had just been invented. So it's kind of like if that guy hadn't taken off the doorknob, thrown the doorknob away, and, and it hadn't collided with this moment in history where fingerprinting was just becoming a thing, then he would never have been caught and that whole mystery would never have been solved. So it's kind of like that. And with The Mummy's Curse, there's a similar um, tiny, tiny butterfly thing, uh, which is uh, a necklace, a pectoral pendant. Yeah. <laughs> um, and again, with, the, with just jumping back to Ship of Doom, there's the Marconi radio. And then we go forward, much more forward in time to 1969 for the final one and the moon landing. And again, there, there is an element that's a tiny thing that changes everything. So again, very long answer, but but yeah, I think it, the, the reason I chose those four events was although they are huge and they're well known in each one of them, there's a tiny thing nested within it that could have gone the other way. It's sort of a sliding doors sort of uh, concept.
0: Mm, the big what if what yeah, if this that, one thing nah. hadn't happened oh well yeah I love that and obviously uh and now you know it makes a lot of sense obviously you read the book and if you read the um your historical notes at the back as well and and uh, you realize just an important part Abdul plays in the entirety yeah. of the story um yeah. which is is awesome that you went to that level um of sort of like like Fact behind your fiction and I wonder if that comes from sort of like I think you said you went to, to university and studied history is that correct
1: yes yeah that's right so um, but, you know like I was saying before it is one of those things that and I'm sure a lot of people think this about their degree that they're never going to use it again and, and for quite a long time I didn't use it but I think it's always there that curiosity and I love researching things and I love you know just delving into stuff and this this was a lovely opportunity to do that, and as you mentioned, um, one of the one of the things I really want to come out of this book, if if I if I had a wish list, what I would like is for kids in this country and other countries where it sells to know Abdul's name. So uh, just for the sake of your listeners, that uh, a 12 year old boy called Hussein Abdul Rasul was actually the person who made the greatest archaeological discovery of all time which is the tomb of Tutankhamun. So he is the one that actually stumbled on the tomb. And actually, Howard Carter, to give him his due, did uh, credit Abdul as well with the find. And that's why Abdul gets given this pectoral pendant from the tomb. So, But it's just one of those things that history has forgotten. And it's that that old trope of the, it's the kind of white man conqueror, really. And Abdul's really been painted out of the story. He's beginning to come back now, I think one of the most recent exhibitions at the British Museum, ironically, did credit him and there was a photo of him. And um, But no, he's largely unknown. And everybody, if you ask the man in the street or the woman in the street, will say Howard Carter straight away if you say anything about Tutankhamun. So yeah, it's quite nice. To, I, I like to, uh, if I can, bring these characters into focus that are actual you know they're they're quite shadowy they're in the background they're sometimes unknown um so yeah that's what i'm i'm trying to do really
0: yeah and I, I love that especially in middle grade fiction there is an opportunity to sort of educate while not like being a full non-fiction book but you can lace it into your uh, fantasy or your fiction or your your historical retellings you know you can add some real facts and stuff that happens and so you, you learn without realizing it and that's the best <laughs> way to learn i feel yeah
1: self learning yeah
0: but there you go. And that's that's really something I'm really sort of positive about with sort of middle grade stories. So uh, the uh, Butterfly Cup and the Mummy's Curse is out right now. You can go and grab it um, from your friendly local bookshop, your Waterstones online, wherever you need to go and grab it. But obviously looking and praising this book, you've dropped it a couple of times, Marina, about Mona Lisa and what's coming next. So what uh, what can we expect in the next installment? You've given a little bit about the whole stealing and the, the painting <laughs> thief there but what can we expect from Aiden Constantine Luna next?
1: Well, so this was something that was absolutely fascinating to me when I started to sort of read about um, the Mona Lisa going missing in 1911. So in 1911, it was actually stolen off the wall of the Louvre. And the Louvre was a bit of a fortress. I think it actually used to be a fortress, actually. So And they prided themselves on um, their security and... Um, A gentleman called Theophile Homol, who was the museum director, actually boasted that uh, it was easier to steal the towers of Notre Dame than steal a painting from the Louvre. But anyway, somebody did steal a painting from the Louvre. But the funny thing about it, and this is what's fascinating to me, is that the Mona Lisa was completely unknown at that point. It was a really, really obscure, small, muddy Leonardo. Nobody had even heard of it. It was hanging in a room with, I think, a Veronese, which everybody, I think it's called the marriage at Cana. Everybody used to go to this room to see the Veronese. And the Leonardo, Mona Lisa was hanging below it. Everybody ignored it. Nobody had even heard of it until it got stolen. Now, the funny thing about that is it was missing for two years. And in the two intervening years before it was found again, more people went to see the space where it hung than had ever been to see the painting before, it became internationally famous because it was on the front cover of every paper in the newspaper in the world. That's when it became known. So, of course, by the time it went, it came back to the Louvre in 1913. So again, just on the edge of the First World War, it was it was priceless. So in the intervening years, it had gone from being completely obscure to being a masterpiece. And now it's obviously probably the most valuable painting in the world. So that blew my mind. And I thought, oh, okay, so who stole it and, and, and why? And how did it come back? And this is really interesting to me. And then, of course, I began to think about that challenge that Hamal had laid down that, you know, oh, no one can steal a painting from here. And then I thought, who in the Butterfly Club or in this era, this Victorian era, would be the person that you would go, I bet he could steal the painting, and it's Houdini. So this one actually has as kind of my companion character. So I have Conan Doyle in the Mummy's Curse, and in this book it's Harry Houdini. So he is he sees the whole thing as a challenge. He's like, All right, I'm 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 well up for this. So he goes with the children to Paris in 1911, and uh, yeah, he he um he attempts to steal the Mona Lisa for the Butterfly Club. But, of course, someone else also wants to seal it uh uh who i who I won't uh spoil for you, but they're they're not the only ones trying to steal the painting. let's put it that way so yes, uh adventure ensues
0: absolutely, and they say there's no honor amongst thieves hey. <laughs> 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 oh well that sounds absolutely rip-roaring um looking forward to that and my mind has been blown this morning not knowing those uh Mona Lisa facts but now I do know that uh that is a beautiful little bit of trivia
1: yeah I know it's great it's, it's real pub quiz stuff actually when I found that out I was like oh that's great you know and of course as a writer you're like oh I could do something with that so uh yeah that's an absolute gift
0: yeah. Most writers, it's like there are stories everywhere and you just suddenly hear a fact or you or you come across something in either the news or something you're reading and you're just like, oh, if only this went this way. And obviously writers, we have the ability to sit down and actually like come up with these weird and wonderful tangents. So looking forward to, to get my hands on that. Um, but Oh, wow. This has been just Completely eye-opening and a fantastic chat. But Marina, we are quickly getting to the end of today's interview. So before we do disappear, I do want to let our lovely listeners know how they can find out more about you and your books. Do you have a website or some social media they can go to?
1: I am on social. I've not quite got, around, got my head around TikTok yet, but I am on Instagram and Twitter. And uh, my publisher is uh, Welbeck for The Butterfly Club. And there's lots of cool stuff on, um, on their site. And then for the Stags theories, that is Hotkey Books, which is part of Bonnier. So again, they've got all that sort of good stuff, if anybody wants to look me up. Um, But yeah, that would be a pleasure.
0: And this has been a pleasure. Marina, thank you so much for joining us onto the show. And we look forward to what you've got coming up in the future. Thank you very much for having me. And to you lovely listeners, we hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget, you can head over to our Twitter at Big Kids Book Club or check out more from us on our website. That's bigkidsbookclub.com. There you can find additional reviews, previews and over 175 episodes of the show. Staggering amount for you to catch up on if you are only just finding us. But that is all the time we have for this week. So until next time, all I have to say for you is to take care, to stay safe, but most importantly, to keep on reading.